Grammys, Tonys, and Buddhism. Oh my. We're talking with Duncan Cheek today on Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health podcast for musicians and music fans. We talk about creativity, music careers, and mental health. And today, we are talking with Duncan Cheek. Visit musictherapypodcast.com to check out previous episodes and upcoming events, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And let me tell you about a couple upcoming events. One is on Wednesday night, October 5th. That's coming up. My band is opening for Vanishing Twin at Sleeping Village, and also playing that night are Crisis Walk-Ins. I am so excited for the show. I hope you guys can make it out. Uh, go to Sleeping Village website to buy tickets in advance. And the other show I want to talk about is the following Wednesday, October 12th. And that is our October group session where I talk with the full band. We talk, we have live comedy, and they give a performance. And October's band is Asi Asi, a Mexican-American band based here in Chicago. I'm super excited for that. So come on out Wednesday, October 12th to Cafe Mustache for this month's music therapy group session. I hope you guys are doing well. In Chicago, it feels like as soon as the first day of fall came, it turned into fall, which to me, that's a-okay. We're talking to Duncan Cheek today. Duncan Cheek has a new album, and uh, we get into some, some good stuff with Duncan. Let me give you uh, his bio here. Duncan Cheek launched his career as a singer-songwriter with a gift for literate adult pop songs on his 1996 self-titled debut album, which featured his chart-topping hit, Barely Breathing. That song racked up 55 consecutive weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 and earned him a Grammy Award nomination for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. In the years since, Sheik has been celebrated for his work in musical theater, including the groundbreaking success of Spring Awakening, which won eight Tony Awards and a Grammy and is also the subject of the just-released HBO documentary, Spring Awakening, Those You've Known. Duncan Sheik has released eight full-length solo albums, which have been praised by both critics and his discerning fans. Plans are underway to perform songs from his new album, Claptrap, as well as his staggering catalog on tour this coming summer. Josh joined me for this conversation with Duncan, and we had a really good talk. Um, We're also going to hear uh, in this episode some of Duncan's newest tracks off his new album, Claptrap. I hope you guys enjoy. Here is our conversation with Duncan Sheik. Okay, so I'm here today with Duncan Sheik. Duncan, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am also here with Joshua Wentz, who engineers all the shows and is also a big fan. So uh, we're happy to have him, too. And thank you. I am very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, and a birthday boy. And That's a birthday right. Boy. <laughs> birthday boy. So he's probably reflecting on life as well. Um, so I start out every episode asking a musician the same question, which is just to give people a sense of what a musician's life looks like. And so the question is, can you describe what a typical week looks like for you? Mm. Well, so, you know, obviously we were just talking about having a, a, a child who's between three and four years old. So that's radically changed what my typical day or week might look like in terms of, you know, just what, you know, what I have to do and, and what, how much sort of free time I have um, to work. Um, so, I mean, the truth is like the morning is pretty devoted to her and getting her ready for whatever activity she might be doing, whether it's, you know, school, whether, you know, she went to school for the first year last year, she'll, she'll have her second year of school coming up. Um, 
and you know she's in she's in various like camps all this summer but all this to say it's like the morning is sort of just like devoted to her mm-hmm. and then you know I, I will I will try and do um whatever you know errands I can do at, quickly after that and then there's like maybe a small window when I can come in here and like have some private time to just you know where there's nobody else in the house um but then you know she's back in the house by one o'clock pretty much so it's a short window yeah um and then you know i whatever i i will uh, you know if she's taking a nap or whatever it's hard for me to be making a lot of sound in here because i sort of have it's hard to explain, but I've got a couple of different studio setups in my in in my new place where I live now. There's like one in the library and there's one in the basement. And I, you know, depending upon who's in the house, I'll, I'll, I'll move around to one of the other places so I can manufacture some privacy. Um, but it's 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 hard to find that time. And the interesting thing about that is that because that time is a little more precious, like what you do in that time seems to be sort of better or, or it's just more compressed and more, it's like, I, you know, having that thing of like, okay, I've only got 90 minutes mm-hmm. to get this idea recorded in some fashion, whether it's a sketch or whether it's a, a proper recording for a, a particular instrument or whatever. And then you're just forced to do it and you have to get it done. And that's your only shot. So I think weirdly it's like, even though I have less time, free time to work, mm-hmm. uh, sort of getting more done <laughs> because like I'm, it's just more focused when I have that little opportunity. Whereas if you have just eight or 10 hours a day to record whenever the F you want, which was my life for a long time, then you can literally do nothing all day. And I often did that. So <laughs> is this like this interesting um uh, you know, it, it it doesn't really compute that it shouldn't work out that you've got less time, but you get more done. But that seems to be the case these days. It sounds like that surprised you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, you know, again, it's also, I, I think I just have a different perspective on it now where it's sort of like, okay, this is what's happening today. And I have, you know, X, Y, and Z errands to do that are not related to my career or anything. They just have to do with with my daughter or my wife or my mom or some other, mm-hmm. you know, bureaucratic nonsense that I have to deal with. And, you know, whenever I have the time to sit down in, you know, and fire up the Ableton or sit down at the piano or pick up a guitar or a ukulele or whatever, I, I'll do that, you know, but it's... um. But I just, I don't, um, I, I no longer get annoyed about the fact that, oh, I only have like two hours to work today. Like, I'm just like, well, that's the way it worked out. And so that's, I'm going to do the best I can in that two hour time that I have to like actually make music. And um, and so far, so good, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's an adjustment, but I think that that would be comforting for people to hear who are considering how do I have a family someday and remain a musician, I think that that's exactly right. You are sort of forced to structure your time in a more intentional way. Yeah. And and, and in fact, I'm not like super intentional about even what I'm going to do. It's just being sort of more open and free flowing with like what happens in the course of the day. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, um, oh, there's, you know, I, I can actually go, uh, you know, a, f- a friend of mine sent me a track just out of the blue and, you know, he wants me to sing some vocals on it. So I'm like, okay, I could do this, you know, probably in the next couple hours. So I'll just go and sort of just like, I'll spend my time doing that because that's what came up, you know, in my sort of field of vision. So um, I, I think in a way I'm enjoying this, that process much more than than being sort of rigid about, you know, what I have to do and what I have to get done. When you had more free time or were at a different point in your career, did you work towards a certain kind of work ethic when it came to music or have a discipline that you tried for? So, you know, I've been um, a practicing Buddhist since I was 19. So for 
33 years. I'm just aging myself for the sake of it. But, um, and so, you know, my day, um, my, you know, I should, I should have said in the morning, it actually it really starts when I chant, I sort of do my Buddhist practice then. Um, and, you know, that's, that's always been the case for me for the past three decades. And so I think there's, all, there's, there's always been an attempt <laughs> for me to like, if in my Buddhist practice to sort of have a real intention about what the day was going to hold for me and what I was going to try to accomplish and what, you know, both creatively and in terms of just whatever's going on in my life at that moment, you know, to have some intention about it. Um, but again, I think, you know, the truth is like, I don't know that, that I ever had the amount of agency I thought I did in terms of like when the creativity was going to hit and what I was going to be able, like how much bandwidth I had to work on something and work on a song. And the truth is like, you know, I had a had a loft in Tribeca for nearly a decade between like, let's say 1999 and 2008. And it was a really like a big spacious loft with like a really pretty cool recording studio inside the loft. And I had, a, you know, a really nice Calorec console in there and a drum room and a lot of, you know, a lot of gear. And, and you know, I, in, a, in a funny way, like having the studio sitting there in your house, it almost became sort of a block. I mean, it's not, I did get a lot of work done there and, I, you know, I made a couple records there and I made Spring Awakening there, but it, 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 I was never a person who could just sit down and be like, oh, I'm going to work for eight hours today. Mm. It, it just, that never panned out. And in fact, even when I would try and sort of have that kind of discipline, um, I, I couldn't pull it off. And then I'd like beat myself up about it, which is useless. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, again, I think what I've, what I've come to, um, to realize, and this has a little bit to do with sort of non-duality, um, is that is that you know you're we we think that we're the doer of all the things that sort of get done, right? We think that we have all this agency and control over what's going to happen in the course of the day, and and you know, but but I my suspicion <laughs> is that um, is that we have far less agency possibly almost none. And we're sort of instruments through which things happen. And having a sort of acceptance of that um, makes makes things a lot less stressful and anxiety prone and frustrating. And just like, okay, this is like, life is happening in this way. This is how it's unfolding. And this is what I'm going to do now. And maybe I'm inspired with some musical idea. Awesome. Maybe I'm not. So don't like, push it <laughs> like I you know go for a bike ride you know go to the museum go you know I'm in New York City so luckily I have a lot of things around to inspire me but um yeah so I mean I, I get, I'm not you know I, I think maybe there are people who are wired to be like really disciplined and that's the way that they're able to function it's just never been my process even when I've tried it sounds as though you have done some I'll use the word work in a very broad way, some personal work in moving from being hard on yourself for not coming up with an idea or not working enough as, as much as you had planned or something to more accepting mm. kind of the flow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was a, a combination of things, I, you know, when, you know, I, you could, you could argue that <laughs> there were like two specific moments in the course of my career where I had a, a lot of like what I'll just call like overt success, right? So when my first single came out and my first record on Atlantic Records came out 96, 97, um, there was like a, a lot happened during those two years and there were a lot of expectations put on me by myself and by other people, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, you know, in, in, well, I guess, you know, 10 years later when Spring Awakening sort of happened, there, it, it was just like a recurrence of that wave where there was like a lot of expectation 
but from from my own end and from other people about like what I was going to do next, right? And I think in in both of those cases, like there was a huge amount of unnecessary sort of suffering and strife that I went through because I was trying to like I was I was trying to please all the people all the time and you know maybe do work that was like really you know commercially successful in a certain way but that's not necessarily the work I wanted to be doing mm-hmm. or I was trying to sort of do both like yeah I'll 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 make I'll try and make you know cool arty like art pop records on my own and then I'll try and write pop songs for other people or something like that, which again, that wasn't a really natural fit for me at all. So it was really spent a lot of time like trying to bang the the square peg in the round hole with that stuff in order to, to you know, to sort of continue, a, 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 you know, to ride a wave of success. There was just, you know, what, again, I, I, part of me feels like I didn't have anything to do with that in the first place. It's just like a thing that happened. So, so, you know, trying to make trying to make the wave continue to roll when it's just like the wave's going to crash. Every wave crashes, you know, and then you have to wait for the next wave to come along whenever that may be. Sometimes you got to wait on the water for a long time. I'm not a surfer. I'm just using a surfing <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Obviously, you're not a surfer, Duncan. But anyway. <laughs> Do you feel with regards to the the pressure with uh, spring awakening that that was maybe more internal than external i mean that's a that's the kind of thing where instead of writing a piece for yourself you now have involved lots and lots of other people in in creating this stage production Mm. um and yeah i'm curious if that if that pressure that you feel that you felt you know starting kind of a, a new direction was something that you put on yourself more than the other people putting it on you or, or vice versa. Totally. That's, that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, during the sort of Atlantic records years um, and, you know, let's say up until 2005, um, I was, you know, I was still like on some level, there was some part of my brain that was like, Oh, you need to try and make a record that's going to sell a lot of records and so you can play shows with thousands of people in the shows. And that's the important thing that you need to do. And if you're not doing that, somehow you're, you know, you haven't lived up to the to the expectations that you have for yourself and for everybody else around you. And you're you're a bad person for not having done that. Like I think that was definitely a part of my brain and consciousness ha- had that idea going through it. And it's a it's an absurd thought loop to have going because it's it's ridiculous. And again, I mean, I think it it's taken me the past couple of years and the sort of process that I've gone through the past, let's say, two and a half years, for me to realize like how what a waste of time and energy that was for me to be thinking that way. But of course, that's also what I had to go through in order to get to the other side of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so then, yeah, I think you're right. After Spring Awakening, I, I had a moment where I was like, oh, cool. Like, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a broad set of people from even from some different mediums who are interested in the music that I make, whether as a, as a, somebody who makes records or as a composer for theater. And I can continue to do this and it's going to be okay. But, you know, again, like when you when you have like this moment of, um, uh, you know, there's a thousand people a night going to your Broadway show and, you know, you're winning all these awards. I mean, and and then when that like stops or when it sort of like fritters away (laughs) and you're waiting for your next show to maybe go to Broadway or what even off Broadway, whatever. Then there start that anxiety just crept up again for sure. Then you know when American Psycho went to Broadway and did not do well there, um, you know it was it it really beat me up. And I went through a little bit that same process of just being beat up, like not, you know um, I I've done this thing and I was really proud of it and I thought it was really good and it didn't work. 
you know, so I'm a bad person. Okay. You said it again. I wanted to go back and ask you about that. Can I ask you to unpack that phrase, bad person? Well, again, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe just, I'm being a little bit um, cavalier. I, I, I don't, you know, it, it's more just a, a sense of like, well, you know, um, this, maybe I'm wrong about this thing that I think this, this creative process that I've been involved in and the thing that I'm helping to create with all these other people, which I thought was so cool and, and so exciting and so novel and so groundbreaking, it didn't, the audience didn't experience that, didn't experience it that way. So I was wrong. Mm. I was wrong about what, about what I thought was going to be the, you know, the reception and, and the effect of the causes that I made. You know? So I could see two things there. One, I can't trust my judgment or maybe my creative instincts aren't working for me th- this time or something like that. Does it go either in those directions? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I beat myself in all kinds of ways. I mean, I'll give like a funny, a, a really a simple example. When I, when I started to do American Psycho, this would have been like 2010, 2011. It's sort of around the time I got really into Ableton, which is the software that some, you know, some of us nerdy musicians use as, as their DAW. And I was, I was always like a logic person. I, and, you know, I would use Pro Tools if it was in a studio, but it, I was more like a logic person. And then I got Ableton and I got very excited about it. And, you know, I got pretty deeply into it. And as the show went from the London production in 2013 to the Broadway production in 2016, like I kept like refining it and refining it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this this score is sounding really cool now. And it's got this really interesting, um, these sort of layers of of intrigue that are going on between the analog synthesizers that I'm playing live and the sort of virtual stuff that's in Ableton itself and the programming in Max. Like, so I'm thinking like, oh, this is really great. And then sort of after American Psycho, I, I started like going down the rabbit hole of like YouTube videos of people who are really into modular synthesis and, um, and I was like, oh, this is the thing that I need to do. I need to get into modular synthesis. It's going to completely change the whole my whole way of my whole process and my whole way of working. And it's not going to be about, you know, just like chord progressions and, you know, this whole thing that I've been doing for so long. I'm, you know, it's going to be more generative music and I'm going to really get into sequencers and I spent not too much money, but a decent chunk of money, like getting a couple setups, mods or <laughs> setups, you know, and, and like, I spent like a good eight months, like trying to wrap my head around it. And it was like, you know what, this is not going to happen for me. I, I get such better results, just like using my Juno 106 and whatever drum machine I have at the time and whatever random bits of gear I have and my guitars and my effects pedals why am I trying to prove something about like how, like, you know, how technically proficient I can be with this bit of, I mean, for the people who are into that, I think they are amazing, but I just, it's just not how my brain works, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm really good at make, <laughs> at making unique stuff, you know, using Ableton and using acoustic instruments and finding ways of high, you know, finding the, the the ways of hybridizing um, analog synthesizers and virtual synthesizers and acoustic instruments. You know, that's what I'm good at. And so just like do it, do the thing that you're good at and don't worry about like, you know, trying to, um, you know, it's like I was trying to be too cool for school on some level. And um, it was a, it was a fool's errand. And so I'm, I'm, you know, again, it's like the more, you know, you about something else you said i'm gonna paraphrase um but the what what i heard was 
you know, I've had these two big moments of this really concentrated success. Mm -hmm. And you said something to the effect of, and I didn't really have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder what you mean by that. Well, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get into some terminology that is, um, that really comes from Advaita Vedanta, you know, which is sort of in, you know, early Indian philosophical school mm -hmm. and, and Buddhism. Um, and, you know, there's, this, uh, there's an idea that, you know, we, we have our, um, we have our, our sort of our, our genes and our up-to-date conditioning, like our, our nature and our nurture, right? We didn't, we didn't have anything to do with how we were formed in, mm -hmm. in, in our mother's womb. It, you know, that was, that was just a thing that happened that literally had nothing to do with me. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, my genes sort of, you know, they are what they are and your nurture too. I mean, as a kid, you know, what these things that happen to you and that form who you are, your personality, you know, I would argue none of it, but let's just say most of it has nothing to, it's just, it's stuff that's beyond your control, mm -hmm. but it is stuff that shapes you and makes who you are. Right. Um, so, so I think, you know, even as a thought experiment, if, if you're able to kind of say, okay, well, I am the way I am and I, and I operate the way I operate because of my genes and my up-to-date conditioning. And as much as I, as much as I want to say, you know, make a decision to be like more disciplined or to go to the gym more or to eat better or whatever the, whatever those things are mm -hmm. to be nicer to people in relationships, you know, to be nicer to my mom or my wife, or as much as you might say those things, you know, it's, um, your ability to actually like put them into practice is, you know, it, and it's good to say those things. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just your, your, what's going to actually happen is not so much coming from your own agency. Uh, there's a little bit of a predetermined thing that's going on with, with those, with those larger um, aspirations that, that you might have. And I think when you, the minute you understand that both for yourself and for all the people around you, you know, that they, they're doing the best they can, but when they do things that are messed up or when you do things that are messed up, it's because you can't help yourself. I mean, you really can't help yourself. It's actually like a lyric in one of the songs it's called something happening here, but it's it's not th this is something that was going to happen no matter what okay and the minute you have that realization this is sort of it's kind of like the sam harris free will discussion i don't know if you're familiar at all with with that not with sam harris okay well anyway sam harris he's a guy he has a has a very sort of intense take on on free will and the fact that if if you really dig deep deep down to free will you could argue that it doesn't exist at all. They're, uh -huh. they're sort of operating on a pretty deterministic sort of track. And I know that that sounds, it's very troubling to a lot of people, but just as a thought experiment, if you, if you say, okay, everything that happens, everything that happens to us is, is because of our genes and up-to-date conditioning. And, and it's sort of, let's say predetermined, then immediately what goes away is like, Guilt and shame, you know, about yourself, um, blame and anger towards other people, pride goes away, um, worry and anxiety sort of goes away, and, ex you know, expectation and attachment to outcomes goes away. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if, you're, if you're able to kind of like put that thought experiment in place and, and sort of ride it out, um, and I, that's a big, that's a very, look, for me, I spent 30 years as a Buddhist believing that I had agency and, and, and that my determination was going to create my whole reality. Probably to, you know, to an extent that it was problematic for me. And so even entertaining this idea 
that even entertain this idea that like, you know, that that things are much more predetermined than than we think. Um, it was it actually took a huge weight off of me. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the sort of judgments that I was having towards other people and myself just fell away. Mm. Thank you for talking us through that. Mm. I thought you were going to talk more about like the machine, the industry machine. But you were talking <laughs> more on like the spiritual level. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about the industry machine too. I mean, and as that relates to mental health, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it, the conversation might get a little more intense at that point. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take a little uh, music break here. And can you tell us about, about your song? There's no telling. Yeah. So there's no telling, I guess in a way it's like the most, um, I mean, I, I like to think it's kind of humorously autobiographical um, and it's like a little mini Romana clef, you know, about kind of being a person who, you know, was able to kind of get away with a lot of nonsense <laughs> because, you know, I guess in a way because I had whatever small amount of fame I had and whatever small amount of, of success I had, I was able to sort of get away with a lot of shenanigans. And then me sort of like looking back at, at those versions of myself and saying, oh, wow, like that, that was like a complete, almost like a completely different person. And then I was like yet another different person. And then if you really like put the, the slices together, it's like, oh, you know, you, you think of yourself as this sort of unified identity, mm -hmm. but it's this very plastic thing mm -hmm. that just is very amorphous, like over time. And in fact, you know, that identity that you, that you think that you are, again, you know, you, you, you have a, you have a, obviously you have a body, you have a mind, but those things are just sort of like, they're ephemeral. <laughs> Both of them going to go away in mm -hmm. 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, however long left you have. But there's another thing that you sort of fundamentally are, which I would argue is your consciousness or your awareness. And that's sort of vast and quite limited and not connected to your body or your mind. I mean, it's connected, but that your body and your mind are just like a temporary manifestation of, of this consciousness. And so it sort of led me to, the, you know, there's no telling what I really am is the lyric in the mm. song. So it's like it was sort of getting at like, well, what what am I really? I mean, I'm not my body because my body changes and just it's going to go through enormous changes and then it's going to be dust. And also my mind, you know, is constantly chattering about nine million different things. And my it's sort of my mind is like an idiot, you know, <laughs> and so and so it's like. It's like understanding that your mind is just going to like do its thing and being able to almost like separate from it and look at it and be like, oh, no, no. What you really are is this sense of consciousness, this awareness. And if you could sort of focus your awareness back around on the machinations of your chitter chattering mind, it's pretty interesting. And then I think through that process, you see that there's something much more profound and fundamental that is what you really are.
is who I am. Oh, 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 oh. My mind does what it does. Oh, 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 oh. And it's a total shock. Do you like Eckhart Tolle? Yeah, I think I think he's great. I mean, I read. You know, it was funny when I when I read The Power of Now, whenever it was, two thousand four, two thousand five. I was sort of I felt sort of guilty because it because as a as a Buddhist uh, and and practicing a very specific form of Buddhism, I I felt like I was you know I was being sort of. Um, you know, I was cheating on my own practice <laughs> by listening to those ideas. But subsequently, you know, I, there's a lot of people, um, and you, you could argue that a lot of Eckhart Tolle's ideas come from Advaita Vedanta, really. I mean, they're, they're quite close. Mm-hmm. Whether I don't know to what extent he admits to that or whether, you know, but, but they, they sort of come from a very long Indian spiritual tradition. Mm-hmm you know, that has, um, you know, these amazing teachers in that tradition. Some of them, you know, from the 20th century, some of them, there's a couple of them, I think, personally, I think that are still around that are really great. And and I, and so I, I sort of, you know, for better or worse, I've, I've made peace with my own Buddhist practice and the teachings of folks like Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rupert Spira is another person who you may have heard of who's fantastic. And I think there's a few people out there, you know, in the spiritual, <laughs> virtual world that we live in that are really um, onto something. That sort of idea of representing how you change over time is something that I think everyone does to an extent. Um, you know, going like, oh, look at look at this picture from from me from 20 years ago. What was I doing at that point? What was was I thinking at that point? But, uh, you know, because you've also created, you know, literal records of your time over the course of the last 20 something years, it's kind of easy for people to maybe from the outside, try to try to try to make those assumptions about you as well. You know, saying like, oh, this is your first album when you were young. This is an album, you know, like Ledger Domain is a good example of an album that you were leaning more heavily into synthesizers mm. and, and than you had previously. And so it was someone would say, oh, he's trying something different or, you know, it gives them a chance to kind of evaluate maybe what they do or don't like about your work. And mm. then, you know, in, in my opinion, um, I always like it when an artist evolves and tries new things. And your mention of modular synthesis was amusing to me because I always tell my wife she's lucky that I don't care about modular synthesis <laughs> because our basement would look a lot different if that was the case. Yeah. But um but I think I don't I don't think it was a fool's errand if you know if I can be bold about that because you know in your new album I think you've taken a lot of maybe what we might call atmospheric synthesis and, and, and injected it into some of, you know, the songwriting that people are familiar with um, for you. And I don't know if you would have necessarily gone that direction if you hadn't done those experiments. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. Um, you must've been sitting in the room next to me while I was making, (laughs) 
But I, yeah, I mean, what happened, I mean, what's interesting is that when I was starting to make the record, like it was like, I think a thousand musicians in the pandemic were, you know, somewhere around March of 2020 were like, well, I've got a lot of time on my hands. What am I going to do now? Right. And, and I, I was, the, I wasn't even like trying to make a record. I was just like, oh, like, let me just, I'm just going to experiment and I'm going to play and I'm going to do like the most avant-garde stuff I can possibly do. Like I, like I really, my initial intention was to like really try to do something that was so out there that, you know, myself and four other people would appreciate it. And that was it. That was, that was my goal. Right. And then as I, like, as I began to do it, you know, again, this is why I think we don't have a lot of control over this stuff. It's like, I realized that like, oh, this is a really cool idea. But if I put it in this context with this drum groove and I have Doug play this thing and have this bass line, it's like a really good pop song now. <laughs> and so it was like, but, and that's what I like, you know, that's what I liked about it, that it, it, you know, there was something about it that was maybe enigmatic and mysterious, but something about it that was just like hooky or, I, you know, that just felt great and, 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 would hopefully possibly be like not so esoteric that other, you know, other people just wouldn't pay attention. So again, I, I'm really trying hard not to be commercial for the sake of commercial sake, but it's like, I have like, you know, the things that I listen to are, you know, they're not really that obscure, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of on the, it's on the, obscure side of pop music or i like it when pop artists do weird stuff like those are like the songs that i generally like you know so i can you know i mean i can listen to a billy eilish record and and you know and there's a lot of it there that i just think oh that's so fucking cool i'm so excited that that sort of broke through to the wider you know consciousness of music listeners you know i don't feel that way about all pop artists but i do feel that way about a few of them so yeah. I mean, whether, you know, again, there's the usual suspects, people like Bjork or Radiohead that have really managed to sort of perfectly ride that line between totally arty experimentation and sort of commercial viability, whatever, for whatever that means. Um, and, and so to me, that's always like a, a sweet spot that I'm kind of shooting for. Mm. That's tricky, though, because, you know, I would say that in maybe the last three or four albums, Bjork has eschewed the commercialism pretty totally. hard it's 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 to the point where it maybe alienates some people that aren't willing to take that experimental trip with her i um, no, I, I agree i mean and the, the new record's coming out soon or maybe i don't know it's, but i'm so i'm interested to see what she does but but i what i will say is like you know let's say vespertine is like my favorite of her records but i saw her perform in it was tw i think 2018 or 2019 here in new york um at hudson yards at the shed and she had this like 50 person icelandic choir you know and then her huge i i'm not sure if it was matmos or who who her the the electronic music guys were but it was just it was a piece of it was a piece of art you know it was like the whole experience was so beautiful and great that I forgave any of the pretension, <laughs> you know, because it was just like, what, this is just such an amazing thing that someone was able to pull this off, you know? And that's sort of what I feel like with musical theater, you know, that's again, my aspiration. It's very hard to hit that bullseye, but that's why I'm, that's why I get excited about musical theater is because I think you can do something really elevated that combines all these different disciplines. Um, and 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 when it, when it's done right, it's it's really emotionally impactful, and this is a really great thing about it. Let me ask you. Um, I don't think I'd be a good therapist interviewer if I didn't touch on this bullet point. Um, for for listeners, whenever I have a guest on the show, I ask them to fill out a form about things we might talk about, and uh, one of the things that was entered uh, was midlife crisis. Yeah, sure. Tell me about that. Well, yeah. So, I mean, what happened, part of what happened was <clears throat> um, I, you know, after American Psycho um, sort of opened and closed 
quickly on Broadway in 2016. And, and I had just, you know, I had Ledger Domain had just come out and I did a little bit of touring, but I actually got quite busy with a bunch of other theater stuff. And uh, I had, you know, there were like really four different shows that were in sort of late stages of development that were getting ready to, to happen, you know, either off Broadway or on Broadway or in regional theaters. And then, you know, my wife got pregnant with my daughter and we got pregnant and, um, and then my, in very fast succession, my daughter was born and I had two off Broadway shows in a row and another show at a regional theater and another show that was like thick in development. And I was like overwhelmed and stressed out and um, really sort of became, you know, I, I was, you know, I was in a way I was like really suffering because I, I just, I didn't know how to manage all mm. of this stuff that I was trying to manage. And, it was like, on the one hand, I was like, yeah, I have this amazing wife and this beautiful new daughter and all this sort of opportunity. You know, I, I wasn't making millions of dollars, but it was like living okay as an artist in New York City. That's, you know, that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. I should be really grateful about it. I should be really like happy with how everything is. And I wasn't, you know, and so that sort of forced me to look at, you know, look at my Buddhist practice and what was going on with that. And, and that sort of then led to me going down the sort of rabbit hole of non-duality and doing a deep dive into that. And it's quite adjacent to my Buddhist practice. So I, I don't, I think of those things as pretty connected. Um, and, you know, and, and it was like, the, it was that weird thing that, that like, I think a lot of people feel this way that, the the pandemic as terrible as it was like had really positive effects for me because it allowed it just gave me two years to make a record not to just put all my theater homework on the back burner put all these expectations about touring on the back burner raise my young daughter um do this work on this record do a lot of reading, do a lot of study, probably spent too much time on YouTube, but forgive me, mea culpa. Um, and, uh, and that was very therapeutic and cathartic for me and, you know, helped me get through what was like, you know, I mean, there, you know, again, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but there were definitely moments in, during that period in in 2020 where I was like, I'm not really that psyched about like waking up this morning and I'm just doing this for the sake of my daughter. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm just going through the motions right now because I want her to feel like she's in a happy environment. Yes. And it was, you know, um, and that was hot, you know, that, that I had never had that experience before. Like I generally felt like I was a pretty positive person. Um, I mean, since since that time, I've I've come to understand that like, you know, people in their 40s, especially, it can be a very, you know, it's like for most people, it's the most depressing decade of their life. This mm -hmm. is just like a fact, you know. Um, but and I, you know, for me, I thought like, oh, everything, you know, when I was, you know. When I turned 40, I thought like everything is just going to be on the up and up. And it, it was like a hard, it was a, it was a hard decade for me. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna about it either. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm at the end of that process, but I am on the other side of like what felt like a pretty dark night of the soul. You could say, yeah. yeah. From the outside, like you were saying, you had all the, the trappings of, of success with, lots of shows in the works and a nice income as an artist in New York city, a family, you know, yeah. a strong history with your music career. And, and even that, you know, I'm hearing that you're one overwhelmed by all mm. of it at once, mm. but I do think it's very interesting. Just the idea. I mean, many musicians or artists are working towards that kind of, that feels like 
that would be great what people would like. And you found that despite all that, you weren't feeling satisfied with how things were or happy. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I was, I, you know, it was a, it was a really tough moment there. I mean, and look, there's a lot of complicated stuff that goes into that soup that is probably not appropriate for me to go into here, but, um, but it had a lot to do with sort of, you know, family histories. And this is again, what I was talking about, you know, sort of, uh, your genes and up-to-date conditioning. It was like some certain things like came home to roost. And, you know, I, I had to sort of like figure that stuff out. And then I also had to like come to the understanding that like, oh, like, I mean, here's the bit. Okay, here's, I'll tell you what the big realization was. Okay. There, on some level, I believed that happiness was, um, going to come from a few very specific and let's just be upfront about it sort of obnoxious things i thought it was going to come from you know like making a lot of money from a show like getting big checks i thought it was going to come like let's say you know i'm married now but let's say before i was married you know it was about like you know who could I hook up with? You know, mm -hmm. it was about whatever, uh, it was about whatever sensory pleasure mm -hmm. I could manage to, to, you know, get for myself. Like that, like, like that's what happiness was. And mm -hmm. everything else was just, you were just doing it in order to get these sort of like really like sort of dumb signifiers of like, yeah, like this is success. Woo. Like party, whatever, you know, call that, however you want to characterize that like and then i you know <laughs> through this process i realized like oh like i mean some of those things do give you pleasure that's fine okay but that's just it's the most sort of momentary pleasure that goes away you know most of the time it goes away in 15 seconds it might last for 15 minutes it might last for 15 days but it doesn't really last any longer than that mm -hmm. with all of that shit mm -hmm. i mean and and those, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying those are not the things that give you happiness, mm -hmm. period. Like they give you pleasure, but then you're also going to have pain because of, because of what you did in those activities. Or you're going to have pain just because life is, is going to give you pain. Right. But what you don't have to have, you don't have to have suffering. You don't have to suffer about all this stuff. If you can just understand, if you can have a sort of, more equanimous view of what the day is supposed to be composed of, then there's this amazing nuance and richness that can come out of that. That's really, really great. Um, and so, you know, again, I think, you know, what, what's, so the realization, and this sort of comes from my, 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 I'll call him my friend. He's a guy named Roger Castillo, but he's like a sort of a teacher, an Australian guy who's a teacher. He's like, what you're really looking for is peace of mind. Like mm -hmm. that's what you're really looking for. Mm -hmm. And if you and if you can achieve that, um, and you and the way, well, the way to achieve that is to just see that, like, oh, all this, all this pleasure that I thought was going to give me happiness, and all this pain that I thought was causing me suffering, those are just things that are happening. And they're going to happen in whatever measures are going to happen. And if you can just sort of take them for what they are and not be attached to them. And again, you know, say that you're the root cause of that pain or you're the one who has to drive that pleasure to make it happen. If you can just detach from all of that nonsense, um, then there's a much more um, there's a much a much more interesting and fascinating and rich place on the other side of that of that sort of merry-go-round that was that was great thank you for talking through that i thought that was really interesting to hear your experience with that and what you've come to uh, mm -hmm. through all your experiences i let's uh we got we had another song we want to share and this is maybe can you tell us about maybe yeah, so maybe, so that's the song, I guess, apropos of what we were talking about. Like when I had the first inkling 
of of that of sort of getting to the other side of this dark place that I found myself in. And I was, you know, I think at the time I, I had a place up in Garrison, New York, where I had a, a recording studio. Um, but I was in the process of selling it, but it was before I sold it. And I, I just sort of reorganized the studio and I was, you know, doing the last set of recordings for Claptrap. And I was like recording like some marimba parts or whatever it was. I don't know. And, and I walked outside and it was like a really beautiful spring day. This was 2021, I guess. Um, and I and I was just like, oh, like, I you know, sort of all this stuff clicked together in one moment, and I was like, oh, like actually, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what I was like freaking out about so much, but you know, actually, there's a, you know, this this sort of consciousness and this awareness that we have, it actually has a sort of a quality of of. Uh, you know, loving kindness that, that it's imbued with. And, um, and it was just a really nice feeling. And it was just like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe it's not as bad as all that.
how do you define success for yourself? Um, well, now, you know, now it's just, um, okay, I'll give another dumb example. And this, maybe this is going to sound <laughs> really cheesy. But um, I, the night before last, I think it was, I was, they were asking me to make like a Spotify playlist. They were like, here are the songs that inspired your new record, right? It's mm -hmm. like normal record company, you know, homework that they give you when you're putting out a record. And and that was actually, I I mean, I, I have done it before, but I didn't, I didn't, I figured out like, it's the easiest thing to do. I just didn't realize it's something that any Spotify user can do. You can just make a playlist and make it public. Like, and I didn't even know that. And so I was like making this playlist and, you know, it was like a weird, not, it's not that weird, but it's a combination of the usual things that I talk about being my inspirations, whether it's David Sylvian or Talk Talk and Mark Hollis. And then, you know, there's like some yacht rock on there and there's like some other th weird things that there's some Rolling Stones things that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest like Rolling Stones aficionado, but there was some stuff that was influencing me. So anyway, I was making this playlist and then my daughter, you know, came in and we were just like dancing, you know, <laughs> like dancing around listening to the music on this playlist. And then I was like, you know, I'm the worst. I'm also, I'm a terrible dancer, but I was like picking her up and like holding her like this. So she was just sort of like, and like spinning around in circles. So she was like floating um, and she just had this look of like total bliss and, you know, she was like in a trance and um, like that. I was like, yeah, that's success. Oh, that's so sweet. No, that was, you know, that's a nice, that's a nice little ending. That is a nice ending. there. <laughs> yes, that was, that was very touching. So Claptrap is your new album. It's out Friday, August 26th. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> it sounds great. The the singles that have dropped are are really nice. And like I was saying, I love the atmospheric elements. And I've always been interested in how you doing your thing can translate across multiple genres. You know, it's interesting that what uh, on a high kind of became a dance track. Yeah, right. But it really didn't start as like an electronic track, but it had a dance vibe, and people could like play with that. So I'm interested to see like what will how how things will evolve with uh, with a new one. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, that was for me. Like I've always loved electronic dance music, but I was sort of too shy to do it myself. I mean, I had little bits of pieces of things in the records that alluded to that, but it wasn't to ledger ledger domain that I was really doing it. And then I felt I feel like this was just a process of sort of just making that amalgam a little smoother where, you know, there's, a, there is a lot of electronic music influence throughout the whole thing, but it is sort of couched within a more um, art pop framework, you know? So I'm glad that you picked up on that. <laughs> That's a relief, I guess I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Really, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Okay, I want to thank Duncan for his time today. That was amazing. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We will be back next week. And also come see us next week, next Wednesday night at Sleeping Village with Vanishing Twin. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love, until I see you again.